continuing a new sermon series in 1 Corinthians called Being the Church, right? And we've been looking at it. Hopefully, I've heard from many of you saying it's been a real blessing to kind of think through what Scripture says about being the church and what it means to be the church. And hopefully that's been a blessing to you. But I want to remind you that last week we ended with a question that Paul asks. I mean, he kind of models it himself, but then asks us, or we, I ask you to consider the question, which is, well, how can you and I participate in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? And I wanted to mention that last question from last week, because that's exactly where Paul kind of turns now in, his, in the text. And it's, if you don't, I said the Corinthians, of course, it's one letter written to the church in Corinth, right? But all these thoughts are kind of linked for Paul. So like he's reaching back into things he's already said, and he's reaching forward into things he's going to say. As JC shared with us, we're actually heading into the 1 Corinthians 13, which is the love chapter, which we all know pretty well. But he's kind of rooting all the church behavior and the church kind of decision-making and how we live our lives uh, into this narrative, this kind of letter to the church in, in Corinth. And, and so we've been talking about that together. And last week, though, he talked about that, about his own desire to participate, to be a partaker in the gospel, right? And so I asked that question, and I kind of want to bring that up again. Like, did you think about it this week? How you, where you are, can participate in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ? Too often, I think, that we relegate that to professionals. And, and that would be fine if we thought professionals were supposed to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the problem is that's not Jesus' own model. You remember he sent out his disciples when he was perfectly capable to go and do it all himself. And he chose to send out disciples. And then you can remember that uh, before he ascended to heaven, he, he empowered his disciples to go and to share the good news to all nations. Right? And, and so we are invited to be part of that. And so Paul's kind of writing to the church in Corinth, and he's like, hey, he's, he's encouraging them uh, to participate. I would encourage you too. But today, hopefully we think through that a little bit, practically, how it can look in our life. And with that in mind, I want to talk, because we're talking about like, what it means to be the church, and, it, and today's topic is to win. What does it mean to win? How can we be winning as a church? And it might not be what you'd expect, because our culture celebrates a lot of winning, but not necessarily the kind of winning that the church ought to celebrate. So we're going to jump in today to 1 Corinthians 9, but before we do, I want to pray like we always do, that God would give us understanding of his word, and then uh, we'll turn there together. Uh, Father God, I thank you so much for the opportunity to be in your house and to sing your praises, because you are worthy to be praised. I thank you so much for the opportunity you made for us to have time in our schedules to come and to hang out with one another and to hear from you. And Lord, we know that you teach us all the time. We know that you reveal yourself to us all the time in our life. If we would only pay attention to you, you're speaking. And yet we also know that you speak through your church. We, you speak when we're together, that you teach us together. And so today, Father, I'm going to pray that prayer that we have, have an eye toward you, an ear toward you, that we would behold you, that we would understand, that we would uh, be changed because of you. And our, our lives would not be some intellectual ascent or, or even some feeling, but a, a visceral response to who you are, that we would actually behave differently because we've experienced you. I pray, Father, for, that you would bring to mind, maybe many of us have been believers for a long time, that you would bring to mind all the things you've taught us about what it means to be a follower of your son, Jesus Christ. I also pray, Father, that there's things that we've gotten wrong, that we've stuck in there that aren't your desire for your church, that we would uh, be willing to loosen on those things and, and follow you not hold on to traditions more than we hold on to our Savior, Jesus Christ. So help us, Father, do that today. Do the work that only you can do. We ask you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to turn to uh, 1 Corinthians 9, and we're going to be covering 19 through 10, 13. So we've got a pretty, pretty good chunk of scripture to cover today. <clears throat> but I remind you that the, the, the very last thing was Paul asking, you know, he, he was kind of celebrating how he gets to participate in sharing the gospel. So verse 19 of chapter 9, this is what Paul writes. Though I am free... 
and I belong to no man. I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. And so Paul picks up, I think I'm going to kind of tie back into things he already said. And you can see if you're, if you're listening to what the word says, he already ties it in here. Though I am free, he talked about, you know, his freedom. He hasn't charged anything for the gospel. And I, am, I belong to no one. He, he's not, he doesn't have to do anything for anybody, right? I think one of the great opportunities I've been praying as I studied the text this week myself is to move from the idea of I have to to I get to right you're not compelled you don't you're not forced to do things but you're allowed to do things and so many things in our life that we kind of bemoan is um, things that we are allowed to do that we're invited to do and so Paul says though I am free he's a free man uh, and he belongs to no one he's not he makes himself a slave to everyone you remember he said that right the slaves will be free and the free become slaves so Paul not only preached that to the churches but he was modeling that in his behavior so what he said before about the, slave, free become, the free man becoming a slave for the sake of the gospel, Paul's like, and I'm doing that very same thing. And here's our first point then. What does it mean for the church to win? And this is what it means. The church wins as many as possible. And that's Paul's goal. So what does Paul want to do? He wants to win as many people as possible to Christ. This is his motivation. This is why he's um, giving his life over to the gospel, that he could win as many people as possible. Paul sees his service uh, to others as sacrifice, you know. You, you'll, you'll know that he very much expresses that. You know, he's pouring out his life like a drink offering. Why? For the sake of the gospel and for those who are hearing it, right? That he wants to win as many people as possible. Today we're going to talk about the way that he kind of gets uh, into that, specifics of how he's done that. And remember, this is all in the heels of talking about should we be eating with people who are different than us? Should we be participating in, sacri in uh, sacrificial meals and things like that? But Paul sees his own sacrifice as worthy of winning others. He sees the price that he must pay as worthy of the gospel. He sees it as a, a just exchange. Why? Because he thinks that, to, um, that, that he wants to win others to Christ, and that means to add others. Or there's an interesting um, turn of phrase in the Greek that says to not lose people to the gospel. So it's not only you have, you know, sometimes if you have opportunities in your life, you have the benefit of doing it, but you have the opportunity cost of not doing it, right? So like if you, if you do it, you get the benefit of what you've done, but if you decide not to do it, you've lost what you could have gained. And, and Paul has that kind of mentality about it, like I, I don't want to lose what I could have gained. I want to win as many as possible. And so this becomes kind of the North Star for Paul's own life. He's going to, and this is his writing letter to the church. Why is he writing a letter to the church? So that as many as possible might be saved. And then he says, um, I'm going to uh, win as many as possible or I'm going to, that I might gain more is actually the way the, the word translates, that he might add more. He might gain more. And that just means many. He doesn't know how many, but he wants to add as many as possible. That's his motivation. That's what it looks like to win in the church. So with that idea in mind, that to gain and not lose people and to add many, it's interesting the way it says, you know, the church wins as many as possible. I have a question for you. <coughs> Excuse me. How many is it possible that might be saved? Like the people around us in our lives. How many is it possible that might be saved? Because that's what Paul's concerned with. I haven't really thought about that too much. You know, I think about wanting people to be saved, but how many are there? How many around us are at risk of being lost to the gospel when we know the gospel? And, and I hope that you do know the gospel of Jesus Christ. But how many around us are, 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 are being lost to the gospel? Or how many is it possible? See, Paul kind of opens it up, the polis, the many people are available, that, the, 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 it could be the nations, right? Could be lost. 
And he's motivated, therefore, to give his life as a worthy sacrifice to the cause of the gospel. So we're going to move now because Paul's going to get into the specifics of how he did this, right? So he says, I, I, made myself, I made myself a slave to all to win as many as possible. And then he's going to give four kind of model illustrations of people groups he's reached out to specifically. Verse 20, to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I am myself not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law, so as to win those who don't have the law. And then to the weak, I become weak, so I may win the weak. <clears throat> and he wraps it up like this in verse 22. I have become all things to all men, all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. And so Paul's like, I've done all I can do to become like these people that they might hear the gospel. And, I, and if you just sit on that for a minute, and this is a verse many of us know, I become all things to all people, by the grace of God I might save some, right? But Paul gives some very explicit people groups that he's intentionally gone and engaged with for the sake of the gospel, right? And the first is the Jews. And it's kind of funny to hear Paul say, I intentionally went and acted like a Jew for the sake of the Jews. He, he, his model of of because i ask you like how could you participate in the gospel you go and you be like people you go be like people now this is kind of counterintuitive because so much of what i hear taught in the churches don't be like them be different from them be be over there on the other side of the room when they're all over here having fun you're on the other side of the room and you're like not participating at all in that stuff that's not paul's model of ministry matter of fact Think to the questions being asked. Should we not touch women? Should we not eat at the temples? And he's like, no, you should get married and have a life. You should, you should uh, if that's what God's called you to do, not everyone, but for those who are called. And yeah, you should go and discern, should you sit and eat or not, for the sake of the gospel. It's a discerning principle. So there's times that you do go to the other side of the room where they're having the fun and you participate in that. But he says he became like them. But it just, notice what it, it doesn't say he became them. You see, Paul himself, I thought it was funny that he started with the Jews because Paul was a Pharisee among Pharisees. Like, if you wanted to be a good Jew, you were like Paul. That was, the, that was your role model. He was the guy. He was, he was amongst the leadership. Had all the right credentials. And Paul himself, you, you must recognize now, the, the severe shift that he took from being the self-righteous Jew to becoming a believer born again in Jesus Christ. So much so that he would look back on the Jews and go, I'm not even like them anymore. So I have to go and try to be like them. Be like them. Why? For the sake of the Jews. So this would mean that Paul, and this gets in, now I, I begin to see here some articulation of the gospel that's interesting and it's kind of deep and people don't like to think about it that much, I don't think, but that, that there's these times where Paul goes and chastises like Peter for, for behaving like a Jew when he doesn't have to ascribe to the law anymore. But it was all about why Peter's what Peter's motivations were. And yet later he has Timothy circumcised so that when they go to the, Jew, the Jews, they will be listening to the gospel. So there's this kind of thing that Paul does where it's engagement on t intentional on purpose. So the first group is the Jews. He became like a Jew in order why? To win the Jews to Christ. That's his goal, right? That's what he's trying to do here. And then the second, and interestingly enough, is those under the law, right? So he has this conviction to go to the Jews and to be like the Jews, to win the Jews. But then he has this conviction to the rule followers, the people who keep the Ten Commandments, the people who know what the law says. He's like, I'm going to go and be like them. And, and then he says something interesting here. I think it's here. Let me look real quick because I, I might be one ahead of myself. Um, under the law, became like those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I go to those under the law 
uh, I became like one under the law. And then he has this little caveat in there. He says, though I'm not under the law, people. I'm not. You remember he said before about eating? He said, who can judge me in my freedom in Christ, right? I don't, I don't have to. But he said, I'm not under the law. But he goes, but I'm under God's law, which is Christ's law. And that's interesting. So you have this kind of do rightism of the Old Testament. You have this kind of follow the rules. And so Paul goes, I go to the rule followers and I act, I, I, I become as like them following the rules, even though I don't have to follow the rules because I follow the rule of Christ. Remember that Jesus himself taught, if you keep these things, you fulfill all the prophets and the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and your soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. You fulfill all the law, right? And so he's like, although I am not under the law, but under Christ's law, I go to those who have the law for the sake of those that they may be saved, for the sake that I might uh, win those under the law. So he, he goes to the rule followers, right? He says, like you. So far, probably religious people are fine with Paul. Okay, so you go to the Jewish people like Jews, you go to under the law like under the law, and then Paul says this crazy thing. I go to those who don't have the law as if I don't have the law. So Paul says, I, I approach those not having the law, and it means to be, to be lost, to be wandering, to have no hope or no direction, to have no conviction of where they're supposed to be going. I became like one who was lost, who had no direction, so as to win those, there it was, not having the law. Yeah, to, I'm going to read it, 21. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law. That's where he makes that double point. But I am under Christ's law, so as to win those who do not have the law. So Paul now goes, and I'm going to reach out to those who don't, who, are, who think they're far from God. And I'm going to go be like them in order that I might win them to the gospel. And then the, and then the fourth, and then I want to talk about maybe some, art, some partic particular ways um, that we can do this. But he says this, I became to the weak. And that means those having no strength. I became like the weak in order to win the weak. And I thought, man, okay, of the four descriptions, I kind of understand the Jews and the, the, the law and the non-law people, but what are the weak? How do you go and how do you minister the gospel to the weak? And he goes, I went and became like them. I became like them. So I think often um, in our life, we, uh, we maybe are more comfortable with the gospel when, we're, when you're winning, like it's strong, you're strong, you know? You, you have convictions, you know what you're doing. And Paul says, no, I enter into what? Suffering with people. I go and, and I say to a friend who just, you know, was diagnosed with cancer, I don't know why, right? I, 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 whenever I'm feeling weak, I confess my weakness. I say, yeah, I am not strong. And yet the gospel applies to me. And so Paul says to the fourth group, the weak, he goes, as if weak, which implies something, by the way. He's not weak. He's strong because of the gospel. But he goes to minister to the weak. He, and I just wanted to hit that because he, he enters into their suffering. He enters into their brokenness. He enters into their inability to change things. And I think what an opportunity it is to minister the gospel in those times when we don't know what to say, when we don't know what to do, when we don't have all the answers. And Paul says, I became like them. I became like them in order that I might win them to the gospel. This, this model of, of going and being like people um, ought to be uh, to... to um, <laughs> ought to be our concern in the church. We, we ought to have concern for those who don't know Christ. And we're talking about why that is, but we ought, that ought to be part of our DNA as a born-again believer. Um, I'm not saying that we can't come to seasons of life, where we, we, and this is a, a thing we should pay attention to, where we become more indifferent to those around us. 
But we ought to, in our DNA, our, our spiritual heritage, being born-again believers, the Spirit of God dwelling in us, we ought to have a driving concern for those who don't know Christ. It's a really, it's a huge deal. And so this ought to direct the church, all the believers in Christ. It ought to direct our church, Family Bible Church, little c. It ought to drive us towards those who believe they're far from the gospel, who are far from the gospel. And so Paul says, um, I, I am uh, trying to win as many as possible. I just want to sidebar for a minute on this idea of becoming like them. So people then get concerned. They go, wait, wait, if I go and I act like them, then what if, what, what if uh, I become like them? That's a real risk. Like, if you end up participating more with them in their life than you are with the gospel, then you've gone over the line to where you're more indulging in behavior that's not becoming of a Christian than you are actually worried about sharing the gospel. So there is a line of demarcation. But what we ought not to do is for fear of crossing the line of demarcation, be so far from it that people who are, who are uh, far from God don't believe anyone who knows the gospel loves them. Does that make sense? And by the way, this doesn't apply to every part of your life. There might be parts of your life where you can't go be like them because you have a problem with that particular issue. I've told you all before that I know, I know folks who did, started a strip club ministry. There's probably many of us that can't be part of a strip club ministry because it's a problem. But there are people who it's not a problem for who can go and serve and love people who work and live in strip clubs, right? What? Yeah. There's a huge drug epidemic. There are some of us that could probably go and, and minister to people who are in the middle of drug addictions. But there are probably people among us who are believing in Christ who can't go minister to people who are in drug addictions because of their own tendency toward drug addiction. So you pick your spots. You've got to know where you're at. There's a, a question I guess we could ask of our heart to say, in the moment, and this is, I'm just telling you church because I've been trying to walk this stuff out in my own life and I hope you have too. I, I want to go and, and to be with people and engaging with people, but the minute I step over that line, I can sense it in my spirit. And I go, whoa, 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 and I step back. Because, and here's the, I think the test. Is my motivation for being here ultimately motivated in the gospel purposes? Is that really, or am I just coming here to indulge in revelry, right? Because I'm tired of being, I just want to be like the world. See, that's the line. But if we are, you know, what, in the world, not of the world, like if we are right there with them and yet in, in doing it for the sake of the gospel, that's good gospel ministry. And Paul says that's how we win as many as possible. Why am I so burdened by this? Because I get so discouraged when I see the places where Christ isn't. I get so burdened for the places I see the absence where we just for, forego the gospel. And I'm like, no, absolutely not. So many, so many things come to mind. I was telling a friend this week that um, so often we self-regulate, you know. We, we, have, we live in a culture that says you can't share your faith, and we in, in, inculcate that into our lives, and then we resist, we reserve our faith because we're afraid we can't share it there. That is not at all God's desire for us. No, we should live out our faith where we are, all right? So Paul says, I do all these things, I become weak, um, in verse 22, why? I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means, by any way possible, what? I might save some. What, is, what does it mean to win as a church? The church wins when others are saved. The church wins when others are saved. That's a win. And, and the funny thing is, many times the metrics we use to measure churches are not about salvation. I've even heard people say, who I love dearly, they've been in church a long time, like, yeah, yeah, saved, 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 but there's more to the Christian life than being saved. I get it, but there's nothing more important than being saved. 
I mean, I have this conviction, church, that if we've gotten bored with the gospel that saves sinners, we are bored with Christ, Christ's self. And that is a tragic thing for the church, to be bored with Jesus. I said before to you that if we don't understand the miracle it means to the sinner would come to salvation, we've forgotten how much of a sinner we were when God saved us. Paul says, I become all things to all people that by any means necessary, I might save some. So Paul says what? Save as many as possible. I've done all these things. I might save some. The word some is interesting because it's not the same word as many. He didn't say I became all things. I could save many. I could save some. I want to articulate that for you a few ways. A certain one. I believe in reading the Apostle Paul. If he went down and ate into the, ate at the temple where they were serving the food to the idols with the right motivation and one person in the temple came to Christ, he would cre- scream, victory. Is the temple still going? Yeah, they still, people were, yeah. But one dude, one lady got out. And Paul's like, yeah, that I might save some. Sometimes we get discouraged. I mean, maybe you don't, right? But you're going along your life and you're like, I want the nations to come to the Lord. Yeah, how about the person next to you? How about the person that you work with? Or how about the person that you live with? Just one that I might save a certain one, that I might save anyone. (laughs) Paul's not even picky. He's not, Lord, save that one. He's like, save any one of them. He does these things that any particular one, and this is one of the glories of the gospel of Jesus, that you might be surprised at who God would use you to reach. That person you don't think is watching, that you don't know where they've come from, that you don't know why they've entered into your life, and then all of a sudden, here it is, and they're like, I want to know what you know. That's an opportunity for the gospel. Paul does these things that, that, um, that, um, that some might be saved. So does this mean that, uh, I have a question about this, by the way. Um, The church wins when others are saved. But Paul, the way this turns, the phrase turns, and it's exactly right, is I do all these things. uh, Wait, wait. Uh, Yes. I become all things, all people, that by all possible means, I might save some. And I had a question. I'm like, what, that Paul might save some? And I go, does that mean that Paul saves people? That's how that reads. And that's not a mistranslation. Like I dug into it because I'm like, that, was that really what that says? That I might save some. Is that what it means that Paul saves people? Does that really mean that like if you go out and you share the gospel and someone comes to faith that you save them? I just want you to hold that thought. We're going to come back to it. That's an interesting question. But I want to talk about the salvation because I think it's important that we understand something about salvation, that we're clear about it. And that we, because again, just like people go, yeah, I know it's the gospel of Jesus, but what about the rest of the stuff in Christian life? I understand that sentiment, and yet there's nothing more important than the gospel, and there's nothing more important than salvation. Why? Because there's a, 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 uh, a huge, uh, perilous situation in people's lives. And I want to talk about the two ways that salvation really works here. The first is that we are saved from hell. We are saved from something. And we are saved from hell. And I think that we have gotten so bored of that language that we say, man, I, I, I don't want to talk about hell and, you know, all condemnation and fire and brimstone. And it's, it's mocked. It's made fun of. Listen, it's not a joke. To, we, we are saved from being eternally separated from God. When Paul says, I, I have done all these things, I might save some, save them from what? From hell, from eternal separation from God, from perpetual suffering. He's saving them from that. This is why I said that we ought to get a little stop, pause in our step with the people around us who flippantly say, I don't believe in God. I was talking to another friend of mine this week, and they said, you know, so-and-so, they don't believe. And I'm like, yeah. And then I'm studying this, I'm like, oh my gosh, imminent peril, real deal, eternal suffering. And this is why we ought not be bored with the gospel of Jesus, because it saves us from hell. <laughs> Come on, church. 
So it saves us from hell, but then what else does it do, the gospel of salvation? It saves us to something. It saves us for something. And what does it save us for? It saves us for Christ, for eternal glory, for, for the exact opposite of eternal suffering. Glory forever. But not only that, here's the amazing thing. It saves us for a meaningful life now. I think one of the, you, you look in our culture, you see the brokenness and the craziness going on. And you know what I'm hearing, and this isn't from Christian thinkers, this is just from thought thinkers. People don't know why they're here anymore. People have completely lost their way. You wonder why people are cruising in the stores and shooting people? Or you wonder why people are, 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 are just, just all kinds of depravity and wickedness? Because they, they get the game now. If there's no God, then none of this matters. And then we weep and we mourn. Why? Because life has purpose. That we're saved because life matters. That we're saved because we have a creator. Listen to me, church, and we have meaning. And the reason a brother or sister is putting drugs in their veins, the reason a brother or sister is seeking anything else is because they don't think that that God is real, the God that made them. They don't think that they belong. They don't think that they are included. Why ought we be concerned for those around us? Because they're being condemned to hell. The Bible, man, I, one time I was talking to a, a dude and he's talking about John 3.16. I said, absolutely right. That John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him would be saved. But you know what John 17.18 says? That if you are rejecting Christ, you stand condemned already. That the default position of humanity is to reject Jesus and that you already stand rightly condemned. We don't talk about that part of the gospel very much. We talk about it like, well, it's a nice plus, you know, nice plus thing to add into your life. No, it's the absolute mandate of God, God's self. So what does it mean then if those, you know, that others might be saved? The church wins when others are saved. What does it mean then? Should we all become preachers? Do you all need to go to seminary and get your degree to preach? Do you all need to start training up and getting ready to proclaim the gospel? Everywhere you go, do you need to carry your Bible with you and tell everybody you see? It's not what I'm saying. This is what I'm saying. Paul says, I became like them to win them. He, he went and he spent time. You already are spending time with people in your life, in your work, at your school. The things you do for pleasure and recreation, going to the ball game or going to the lake, going to the beach. We're already doing these things, the way we live our lives, the way we interact with our neighbors. That there, we, there is a, a, a fullness of our life that has gospel intention, gospel purpose. How do I know this? Because you believe the gospel and God has you there. You don't have to become, he, he didn't, he wasn't like, he didn't come in there like the weird Christian guy. He came in like them and then gave hope. He came in like them and had an eye toward the gospel. And this is what I think the call is for the church. He became like them that he might save some. Do you remember what the scripture said just before this? Something just as controversial as Paul might save some. How do you know, wife? How do you know, husband, if you will not save your husband or your wife by staying in your marriage? How do you know, Paul says, don't divorce them. How do you know that God might not use you to save them? So Paul says we ought to orient our lives this way. We ought to live our lives this way. And you ought to become like them in order to win them. I do all this that I might save some. In verse 23 then, I do all this for the sake of the gospel. And this is his motivation, that I might share in its blessings. And this is going to tie right back into last week. So the church wins for the sake of the gospel. See, it's not about Paul. And it's not about what he can do. And it's not about him bringing salvation. It's about him bringing the gospel of salvation. I'm convinced if you ask Paul, Paul, who did you save? He's like, I didn't save anybody. Jesus saved them. God saved them. I just got to go and share the gospel. I just got to go and tell them the hope that I have. 
And so Paul does all these things for the sake of the gospel. And that means this. It means through the gospel. It means via the gospel, by the gospel. His salvation wasn't some neat trick Paul turned off, you know. It wasn't some cool way that he interacted no one thought of before. It wasn't some particular uh, track he developed or particular thing. It was the gospel being shared that changed our life. That's the euangelion, the, the good news. And so Paul says, I, I did all these things by the good news. People in the temple eating, you want hope? The gospel. People in hard marriages, you want hope? The gospel. People who are drug addicted, you want hope? The gospel. That's it. There's a God who loves you. That thing that you're chasing, he's real. He's there. He gave his son that you could be free. So we enter into people's lives in that way for the sake of the gospel. Here's the second thing he says, though. So he might become a fellow partaker or partner with the gospel. So Paul very much sees it's a synergy he has with the gospel. So as he goes, he's going to preach the gospel. He's going to share the gospel where he is and what he's doing. And so he says that there. He says in 23, I do all this for the sake of the gospel, via the gospel, that I may share in its blessings, that I may partner in the gospel. And this then, and I, I've, I've, I've advocated for this a few weeks now, I feel like, but hopefully you're maybe starting to take that up and maybe try something, maybe a little risk, maybe just, you know, enter into work with a new eye toward what could God be doing for the gospel here where I'm working. And again, not to be, not to be weird or off-putting at all. That's not the goal. It's to be engaging, to be intentional, but to be mindful of what God could be doing. Why does God have you where he has you? Why has God reoriented your life in such a way that you are where you are right now? Is there a divine purpose for it? I've gotten all kinds of jobs in my life, <clears throat> and I, I've gotten all kinds of reasons, but I couldn't think of no higher calling than if God were to place me somewhere for the purpose of sharing the gospel. That would be amazing. Listen to me now. To be a faithful witness to the gospel, you might not see anyone come to faith, but I can tell you this. As a person who is non-believing, I can go back and count out the people who were faithful witnesses even while I was not believing. I remember him, right? A guy named Dave I worked with in downtown St. Louis. He's just a believer, quiet guy, did his job. Another guy I couldn't explain why he was always so happy all the time. I came to faith. I told him I came to faith. He's like, I've been a believer for 20 years. I'm like, dude, that's what it was. Guy I worked with as a mover, he called him Preacher Mike. He was a little more overt. <laughs> so we have this opportunity to participate in the gospel, to take the gospel with us into our work, into our schools, into our home life, into our struggles, into our weakness, right? We can do that. Verse 24. Do you not know then that in a race all runners run, but only one gets the prize? So Paul's going to advocate here, run the race in such a way as to get the prize. Run in such a way as to grab hold of what you're after. And he's like, run with a purpose. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man who's running aimlessly. The word aimlessly there means without direction. Paul's not just going anywhere for any purpose for any time. No, instead, he says, I'm running for a purpose. I do not fight like a man who's beating the air. I'm not just you know, shadow boxing with no one there, right? But here's what's interesting. After saying those things, you think, yeah, Paul, he's going to win the race, and Paul's going to win the fight, you know, and he's going to take it to him. He's gonna... And what does Paul say then after that? I don't run aimlessly, and I don't beat the air. No. Verse 27, I beat my body and make my body my slave so that after I have preached it to other people, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. He's like, I'm after pursuing the gospel for the sake of the gospel. That I may lay hold of what? The people, he's at, the, the, the spirit, the souls he's after for the gospel. But he says, I don't run with one aimlessly. I run with a purpose. 
and I don't beat the air, but I'm after myself. And here it is, the church wins. And this is the interesting thing, because it kind of ties all this stuff up with being married and the struggle of marriage and being in the temple and struggle being in the temple is this. The church wins through self-discipline. That's what Paul says. Paul's like, no, I don't, I don't fight as one who doesn't have an opponent. I'm fighting myself. I'm fighting against myself. The funniest thing is this. He says, I don't, pun- I don't beat the air, right? I don't just fight in the air. But then he says this really, again, interesting thing. No, I beat my body. The, the, another translation I read said batter. I batter myself. But here's the, I, okay, I love Greek. You know this, right? I'm sorry. I'm a Greek geek. It's the way it is. But it says, I give myself a black eye. I thought, what? And you maybe have seen that stuff. Somebody talking about, you know those monks that like hit themselves in the head with, you know, somebody told me that like they were non-believers. They're like, you know those monks hit themselves in the head with a board? I'm like, that's not, that's not what that means. Doesn't mean hit yourself with a strap. Doesn't mean bloodier. There are people who do all that kind of stuff, right? He means I taunt my body. I, I, I you know, have you ever seen um, um, people who, you ever seen any fighting, professional fighting? I, 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 I got to confess this. I'm a little bit into fighting right now. I don't know why. It's just a thing. I'm, I'm fascinated by it. I'm fascinated by watching it, the way people do it. And there's something called a rabbit punch when people are fighting. They're not really trying to hurt. They're just kind of, kind of getting a distance, checking, checking, checking. Are you in range? Are you in range? Trying to deliver the knockout blow, right? And that's what this means. It means to kind of blacken the eye a little bit. Like Paul's giving himself black eyes a little bit. He's just annoying himself a little bit. Oh, you think you're better than those people? You think you're better than those people? You ain't better than those people. Remember? Remember what a sinner you were? Remember? I'm beating what? I'm beating myself, right? Do you, do you remember what it was like? Do you remember what it was like? Do you think you got it all figured? Do you think you got all the answers now? Do you think you got all the answers? And this is some self discipline that Paul's doing. This is how the church wins. We become disciplined and we think, yeah, no, I'm not going to enter into every situation willy nilly, but I'm going to discern in the place I'm going to enter, I'm going to enter on purpose. I'm going to go in there and I'm going to fight the war. I told you last week the three models we had that Paul laid out was being a soldier, a farmer, and a shepherd, right? To be sharing the gospel. It's a war. It's a fight. It's a race. There's a winner and a loser. And I, I've always thought about this verse and I thought, man, it says run, only one gets the prize. Does that mean I'm running against other Christians? Is that what it means? Does that, mean, does that mean that I'm chasing somebody, you're chasing somebody, who gets their first wins? No one's a loser, you loser. You didn't get to the non-believer first. No, we're running against the enemy. He says, I run to get a hold of what? For the sake of the gospel, right? I'm, I, we're, we're competing against God's enemy that I, we might, we, you should run your race in such a way as that you would win. You should run your race with a purpose. You should fight as one who's not beating the air. No, we should be self-disciplined in these ways. Why? So that after I've preached it to everyone else, I'm not disqualified. Boy, that's a real risk. Have you ever heard that? I've been, I'm just, I've been so discouraged by folks who have gone out and preached the gospel and not lived the gospel and then left the gospel. I've seen it. I've seen people get on fire for Christ. They, they're like, yeah, and they're going to go preach. And they're, they're, they're so confident that God's using them. And people are like, wow, look, God's using them. And then they just walk away from Jesus. And, and, and I am so grieved because I have to wrestle with that and say, does that mean that they ever believed? Church, listen to me. There's something very dangerous that could happen in our lives. We become so accustomed to preaching the gospel to others and to saying, you sinners need to repent. You need to know Jesus. And that we get bored with the gospel ourselves and we just walk away but I'm out I'm telling you my heart breaks for brothers and sisters who after preaching the gospel walk away sad walk away unsaved that's crazy Paul says what it's a risk for me that I could be disqualified myself why should we self-discipline because in the end I need to know that the gospel applies to me are we just being honored to ourselves by aggravating ourselves you know 
No. We want to make sure our faith is sure. Yeah. Get that black guy from yourself and you're like, but Jesus died to save me, being qualified for the prize. Verse 10, chapter 1. Chapter 10, verse 1. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they passed through the sea. So Paul's going to start using some imagery now here. About, he's talking about running the race as a Christian. Now he's going to pull back into the heritage of faith that we have. That Our forefathers were all under the cloud and they were all passed through the sea. This is Old Testament imagery. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and into the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food and they all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them and their bodies were scattered over the desert. This is the story of the Exodus. And Paul's going to flesh this out a little bit, but he's like, this is our spiritual heritage. This is what's been going on for a while, that we are called to win this race with God and that he wants them to know the history that they've entered into. A couple things. It says that they've gone under the cloud. I want you to remember that Israel was actively following God through the desert, right? The cloud by day, the fire by night, they were under God's cloud, literally. It says that they passed through the sea. Remember the parting of the sea? They went through the sea. God rescued his people multiple times when it seemed like there was no way forward. God showed up and saved them in those moments. He goes on in verse 2 to say they were even baptized into Moses, into the cloud, the, the, the presence of God, and into the sea, this idea of being under water but not in the water right and then he goes to the next step which is they all ate the same spiritual food and they all drank the same spiritual drink and he does something very specific specifically he says they drank from the spiritual rock you remember that in the desert they were needing food and water and God made provision for both but Paul says this about the rock and that spiritual rock that accompanied them was Christ it was Christ the Messiah it was. And so Paul does something interesting here. He literally, often you'll hear people say, you can't read about the Old Testament in the light of Jesus. But Paul didn't know that, right? Because he did exactly that here. He says, you know the story of our forefathers from the desert and who were, God was sustaining them? That was Jesus. That was Jesus. When they needed something to drink in the desert and the, the rock poured forth um, water for them to sustain, that was Jesus. But he says something more than that. that and this is what we have to get that in these seasons of difficulty and struggle and strife and self-discipline, that Jesus Christ is our rock. He's our sustenance, and that's the next point, is that Christ is our rock. He's the one that is with us. You see, it's not like God put Israelites in the desert and said, go and do your best, and hopefully you make it without dying. He's like, no, I'm going to go, I'm going to send you, and I'm going to go with you. And it's going to get really hard. When it gets really hard and you're really desperate, you're going to need me. And it says what? They ate the same spiritual food and they drank the same spiritual drink. They partook in Christ. They imbibed Christ. A couple of thoughts on this. You know, we have communion, but it's not, that's not what we're talking about here. Like we share communion, but that's not how you get Christ in you. you. Christ is in you through salvation. He's in you through the Holy Spirit. You're already imbibing him. He's with you in your journey. And Paul's making a case that in the Old Testament... This narrative of journey, of difficulty, of struggling and perseverance is rooted in the Messiah. That is the promised one of God. That means, and as I read this, that means that all salvation for all time is completely tied up in Jesus. I told you last week about the idea of, a couple weeks ago about idols, and it's like, <clears throat> are there many gods? And, you know, this is the latest iteration of God. That's not what Paul says. He's like, no, that was Christ. This isn't the only place that that teaching is come, it comes through either. 
that spiritual rock that they drank from and the spiritual food they ate in the desert. Remember they had quail and they had manna? <laughs> I'm laughing because they weren't happy with it. <laughs> Things just got progressively worse because they were complaining. It was Christ sustaining them. Christ who was with them. And yet they, prayed a, they paid a price for it. God was not pleased and their bodies were scattered in the desert. They did not get to walk into the promised land, but they had hope that God was going to deliver his people. So why would Paul mention this? Here it is in verse 6. Look at the word with me. These things occurred, that's the things, the journey in the desert, as examples, the word is templates or types for us to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things like they did. And so Paul's like, so with this idea of journeying in mind and how we win in life, we're, we're going to set our hearts on things that aren't evil. Don't set your heart on evil things. And he's going to list four things here that he calls evil things. Don't set our hearts on evil. What? Don't be idolaters. And that's what I said about going and being like them. Don't worship their gods, though. The, the crazy thing, in matter of fact, all this stuff is rooted in worshiping false gods. All the problems of Israel were rooted in worshiping false gods. If you've been reading the uh, Bible 365, we've been just through that season right now where it's like all the story about Baal and Molech and all the false gods that Israel was worshiping and offending God who is the only God. So don't do that. Don't have false gods in our life as some of them were as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. That's when they made the golden calf. I believe that's in Exodus. Um, I made notes here on this because I want to be able to share it with you. Exodus 32. Exodus 32, where they make the golden calf with the things that God had given them. They dance around it and they think that's God. That's not God at all. That's just the stuff, right? And so that's offensive uh, to God. So, so let's not be idolaters. That's the first warning. These are examples that we ought not be like. Um, we should not commit sexual immorality. I told you before, this is porn, porno, and it means any kind of cheapening of what God said is ultimately valuable um, in our intimate relationships. And so as some of them did, and in one day, 23,000 of them died, right? And that was, that's found in Numbers, I believe, uh, Numbers 25, right? Where they, they sinned egregiously. I think it was in uh, worship, and um, God... Uh, God struck his people over that. So don't, be, don't, don't do that. He's tying back into these things. Um, verse 9, we should not test the Lord. We should not try Jesus. And that doesn't mean try Jesus like, hey, try Jesus. It means judge. Like we should not set in judgment over Jesus as some of them did. And they were killed by snakes, right? They were saying like, why are we even out here? And, and, and they were thinking they knew better than God. If, you know, if I was God, it would be different than this. And they began to set as a superseding authority over God, God's self. He's like, no, 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 don't do that because God struck his people with poisonous snakes over that. You remember the whole story, right? They said, raise up the bronze snake and you'll be saved. They had look at the snake and they were saved. Matter of fact, funny little side note, but part of the cleansing of Israel came later whenever, um, I'm trying to think who it was, he smashed the, that the bronze snake because the people had taken to worshiping the snake after that. They had saved it and gave it a name and they worshiped it and made offerings to it. And so as he was smashing Baal and the, temp, the different um, uh, uh, temples, he also smashed that bronze snake that Israel would no longer worship that thing. And then the fourth, so um, don't grumble as some did, and they were killed by the destroying angel, that they would just murmur against God. God, why would you bring us out here? How bad is this? What is this? You know? And, and so the, uh, we have these models that we ought not be like. We ought not be idolaters. That, by the way, that was, uh, trying Christ was in Romans uh, 21, or Romans, number 21, and grumbling is in number 16. But what does it mean? 
the church, and this is interesting, the church wins by using biblical examples. So, so Paul's not just saying this like whatever thing. He's like, look at what the scriptures say and read your life according to scripture, right? Don't read scripture according to your life. That's what many of us like to do. We want to see our lives and then read the scripture so it fits with what we want to do anyway. No, no, no. Read what God does and then read your life through what God says is true. And so Paul offers these models of what not to do. Too many times when we read scripture, we see ourselves in the positive side. We are Moses, not the sinning people, <laughs> right? Um, we are the people. We are, we are uh, jo- Joshua. Um, we are not the ten that said we can't ever take the promised land. Um, we see ourselves always in the antithetical, but he says, no, 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 don't be like those people. We should use biblical models, both positive and negative, to understand and live out our lives together. And so we have this, this ability uh, to do so. All right, let's see. Verse 11, these things happen to them, and here it is again, as examples, and they were written down as warnings for us. And who's us here? The church that these problems have persisted for Israel. Why is the Old Testament alive to us? Because it's, it's our problems. It still applies to today. The same temptations they fall into are the temptations that we fall into. So he says, uh, these things happened to them as an example and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has now come, or the age of angels has come. So here it is, 12. We'll close with this. So if you are standing, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. If you think you're good, be careful. You could be in peril. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And that, that's a great line. It means that we have a tendency to believe that we're the only people who've had to suffer like this. That, that no one else has our particular set of problems. That, you know, I know they can do their life over there because they have an easier life than I have, but I have the hard life here. And he's like, look, you're not facing anything that isn't common to all of humanity. These brokennesses that we face, these difficulties, these temptations, these trials are common to all of us. And there's nothing that we experience that isn't common to humanity. This goes back to the idea of how do you enter into the weak? Because we're weak too. It's common suffering. But here's the hope. No temptation has seized you. It was common to man. Well, that's not good news. Here's the good news. God is faithful. And, and this is where I want to end. Because ultimately, the church wins because God is faithful. That's how the church wins. That's why the church wins. Because God has made a claim on our lives as his people, and he will not fail. And God is faithful, Paul says. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he provides a way out so you can stand under temptation. So God is faithful to us, and he, you know, you get that. And now you see this, this like imagery from the Old Testament coming forward, right? You get to the point where the river's in front of you and the enemy's behind you. You got nowhere to go. In the moment of temptation and trial, God provides a way for us. God is faithful. And the truth is that as a church, we ultimately hang our hope completely on God's faithfulness. How were people saved who died in the desert? Because they believed God could do it. They didn't even get to see it, but they believed God could do it because God is faithful. I was talking to a friend of mine. Now, like, I'm clinging to my faith. I'm just clinging to my faith. I'm holding on with all my might. And I said, is that really how faith works? Is our faith that we cling to God? Is that your faith? Is your faith, God, I'm hanging on by my fingertips. I'm doing all I can do to hold you. I don't think that's faith at all. I'm not saying you ought not believe. I'm saying I don't think that's faith. I think faith is knowing that God 
is holding us. I'm not clinging to God. He's holding on to me. How can I enter in and be like people who are so different from me? Because in that moment, I know that God's got me. How can I walk in and have some courage when I'm feeling like no courage at all? Because God's got me. I don't have to cling to faith. Man, this is where we have such an opportunity to preach the good news that God saves sinners like us. What can, what can I do? How can I make God happy? You can't. God gave his son to save you. He's got you. God is faithful. Ultimately, we bear up under the difficulty and the struggle because God is able to hold us. He's able to save us. And then we have this, this word that there's a path. I don't know what you're facing in life right now, man. I don't know. You feel like you're like this wide open highway and you're just got cruise control set, man. Praise God, right? Or do you feel like you're heading to a brick wall? You got no way around it? Praise God. <laughs> he's going to find, he's going to provide a path. He's going to show you the way. God is faithful. So I wonder like, do you believe that? Like, do you believe that your victory is secured in Christ? Do you believe for the church and for those around you who need to know God that he bought them when Christ gave himself on the cross, that they're already saved in Jesus' name? If only they were to hear the good news. Do you believe that the, the victory is sure, that the game is over, that the, the enemy is defeated? Not because of our great effort, <laughs> but because of Jesus Christ, the very one that God promised to give the world that we might be saved. Come on. Do you think you're clinging on to him? Or do you know that he's holding on to you? I don't know where you are. I hope you know he's holding on to you. Some people don't believe, and they go, yeah, but I don't believe that stuff, though, right? Listen, I don't care if you believe it or not. God is holding you because you're still here. He's holding you. Salvation comes into your house, into your life. You look back, and you're like, wow, God was saving me the whole time, holding me for this moment. I want to pray together. Maybe your moment, you know? Or I want to pray that maybe there's those around us that God's just going to use us this week to just share the good news with, to be witnesses to. Not, you know, in a weird way, but in a, man, that God would bring, that we would be open to God bringing people into our lives to hear good news. You ever have that thing where you're like, teacher says, I have a question, and he writes it on the board, I'm going to call him on you to answer it. Or you the guy going, oh God, don't call on me. Don't call on me. Don't call. Why? Because I don't know what I would say. I, I don't know how. Or you kept going, ooh, ooh, ooh. Maybe that's how our week could be. God, make us that ooh, ooh that you would work in our lives. Pray with me if you would. Father God, we thank you so much for the good news of Jesus Christ that saves sinners like us. Thank you that you continually remind us of how generous you are toward us, how good your good news is. I pray, Father, that if we've gotten bored or grown tired of the gospel, that you would awaken us by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would have a sensitivity to all you've done. I pray, Father, that you would give us eyes to see our jobs and our schools and our friends and our family with gospel eyes. And Father, I do not pray that we run out of here and we do something stupid to show how awesome we are. I pray, though, Father, that we walk out of this room willing and open and saying, God, you bring somebody. And if you bring them, I'll know it's you. And I'll just testify to who you are in my life. Lord, for the work that you've done, for the faithful saints that have gone before, and they've been that kid saying, yeah, I'll do it. Send me. We thank you for them. We thank you for your gospel, and we thank you for your faithfulness, that through your grace we're saved. Praise you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.